Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. My name's Bill, one of the pastoral assistants of the church. Uh, my wife, Marilee, um, helped me kick off the series that we are in right now. It's called Be Light, Teaching Through First John. She's not here to help me today, so bear with me. Um, it's funny, those acceptance speeches at the ends of like the Oscars or whatever, they, they come and get their trophy and they start talking and they play music to tell them like, hey, get off the stage, we got to keep moving. I think pizza could be like that today. <laughs> like the smell of pizza is the music playing, they're like, Bill, come on, it's time to eat. So hopefully it doesn't come too early. I do have some things to get through. We're in chapter four of the book of First John. Hopefully you've enjoyed the series so far. Uh, Marilyn and I kicked it off several weeks ago. It was continued, several different speakers, but last week was Kathy Spaulding. She was in chapter four as well. The first six verses talk about test the spirits, kind of like recognize, identify false teachers, be careful of these false teachers who are um, becoming a part of the issue in the church that John was writing to at that time in that place. Um, and so today's a little bit of a shift. The title of the message is God is Love, so we're going to talk about that quite a bit. I'm excited to be with you today. I just wanted to start by reviewing... See if I can do this. Here we go. Who wrote the book? If you were here a few weeks ago, I put this slide up. We had things fly in from the sides. It was kind of fun. Um, but who was John? He's, he's not John the Baptist. He's John the disciple of Jesus. He was a fisherman. Jesus called him to follow him. He walked the earth with Jesus for three years. He ministered with Jesus. Um, he was part of Jesus' inner circle. He wrote the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's him. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're looking at 1st John today. And he wrote the book of Revelation. And then we talked about what were kind of the three purposes that John had in writing this letter. And we said it was to refute false teachings, to give the believers confidence in their faith, and to describe righteous living. So we're going to see all three of those at play again today. Um, we also talked about how this letter is cyclic. It is goes in a circle around main themes and topics. It repeats itself. Sometimes it repeats itself. And sometimes it repeats itself. So if I do that, it's because the book does that. Just want to give you a heads up on that. But have you ever noticed a lot of the letters written to churches that became our New Testament were written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. And his writing was very different. So if you go look at, you know, Romans, it's going to be a lot different than 1 John. It's very linear. It's like this, the this, the this, the this, the this, and that. Therefore, here it is, right? It kind of builds on itself, and, and it's more my way of thinking. So 1 John is a little bit of a challenge to me to go around and around. I'm like, you told me this. Wait, you told me, you told me this. <laughs> but it's another style of writing, and it actually can be really, really cool. Um, if it comes naturally to you, great. If it's a little bit tough, stick with it because we're going to keep saying the same things. All right, <clears throat> I think that is good review. So we're going to look at verses 7 through 21 of chapter 4 of 1 John this morning. We'll do a couple at a time and we'll talk through them because this series is called Expository Style of Teaching. Um, that means we go verse by verse, we look at what does it mean, we really take it, try to take it in its own context. Um, a lot of times you'll see that the teachings that we do are more topical, Right, so today's message is God is love. A topical God is love teaching would be, you know, 
just on that topic and all over the place. Well, we're only going to try to look at God is love as part of what John was saying. It's really hard not to go, there's lots of examples of how God is love. We could spend all day talking about that, but we're going to try to stay with what, what is John communicating. All right, let's read verses 7 and 8. I'll read it to you. You don't have to read. I'm going to do the heavy lifting today. Relax, eat the pizza. When it gets here. It's not here yet. I'm, I got eyes on it, so I'll let you know. All right, dear friends, he says, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. He's going to say that again later in the passage that we're looking at today. God is love. It's really a basis um, for all that he's talking about. We've been talking about love one another throughout the series. He's going to talk about loving one another and God is love. So, I think what he's saying is God is source. God is the source of love. Not God is loving, although he is, but God is the source of love. Okay? And so, we're going to see this many times today. When he says, love one another, he says, you are connected to the source. Draw up out of that source of love, which is God in you, and love one another. Okay? So that's why God is love is so important. It's not just God is loving. It's also kind of speaking to this confidence for the believers, right? Everyone who has been born of God and knows God loves, right? So you can know that you're born of God by the love in your life. And so it's also kind of like a taste test, all right? They're, they're, I'm not a forager. I don't go out in the forest and forage much, but some people do. And springtime, you know, like the morel mushrooms are out and like people are crazy for that sort of thing. And I'm sure there's lots of other foraging to be done, but I'm not an expert. So I just went to the internet for some help. And here's two look-alike fruits, okay? On the left are grapes. And if you eat grapes, good for you. You're going to have a good day. You're going to enjoy some flavorful grapes. It's a fruit. It's good for you. It's healthy. Probably tastes good. I don't know if every type of grape tastes good, but it could be made into juice, wine, whatever. On the right is Canadian moon seed. And as I read about this, I hear that it is not good for you. If you eat this, you're going to have a bad day. It's poisonous. It's bitter. And it will make you sick. No offense if there's any Canadians in the room. I happen to love Tim Hortons. Um, we're not picking on Canadians. It's just called Canadian moon seed. Um, so what am I saying here? <laughs> I'm talking about taste testing. So there are look-alike Christians in the world. They look and act a lot like you and me. They go to church on Sunday morning. They pray. They talk about God. But they produce a different fruit. And you can taste test, John is saying, and see whether someone is truly born of God or not. Right? We've been talking about this through all of 1 John. Hey, there's false teachers. Hey, there's people. How do you know who's born of God? Who's in? Who's out? Here's one way. Taste, test the fruit. Look for that love drawn up out of the source that God is love. There's all kinds of love in this world today, right? You know, and for those of you of the, of the right age to remember the, you know, maybe the 60s and 70s, there's a lot of talk about love. Yeah, but it wasn't the source of love that John's talking about. It wasn't godly love. That's what we're talking about. Taste test for the true, sweet, good, life-giving love that comes from God. I want to put it one other way. 
um, which is this. Our actions reveal the choice we already made. I thought that was good enough to say twice. Our actions reveal the choice we already made. And here's what I mean by that. Many of you in this room, like me, have chosen to be born of God, to be born again, to be a follower of Jesus, to follow him with all your heart, and you're, you're living that life accordingly. And your actions will reveal that choice. Your love for others will reveal that choice you've made. And there are people who maybe look kind of alike, but haven't really made that choice to be centered in the true and living God, to accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and to live the life that he commanded us to live. So you can taste test and find that different fruit. Jimmy put it a different way two weeks ago. He read the verse in 1 John 3, 1 that said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So he said something along the lines of this. Failing to love is inconsistent with who we are as a child of God. So we don't work hard to produce a love fruit to become born of God. We are, we choose to be born of God and therefore produce the fruit. It's not a, I'm not going to earn salvation. I'm not going to earn my way to heaven by trying to love people a lot. I'm going to love people a lot because God has already done something in me. I've experienced that source of love in my life, and then I start to share it with others. Okay, enough about the grapes already. 1 John 4, 9, let's move on to verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. So God showed his love. He is love. But he showed it. He proved it. His actions revealed the choice he already made, which was to love us. He created us for a relationship with him. He loves each and every one of you very much. And he proved it. Romans 5.8 says something very similar. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So why was Christ's death the demonstration of God's love? Why would he have to demonstrate his love in that way? Last week, I shared this message with the Vandalia campus, and it was Mother's Day. You know, and you can show your mom you love her by bringing her flowers. So why didn't God just, uh, you know, give us a bouquet of flowers? Well, he did. He created the flowers, I guess. Okay. But why did Christ have to die to show God's love? I think that's an important question. Well, the answer is there in the Bible as well. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have a problem. Relationship with God was broken because of sin. And we're all in that boat together. That's why it says all have sinned and fall short. We all have broken relationship with God. But God showed his love. He demonstrated that he wanted to resolve that problem and be back in relationship with you by sending his son Jesus to die to take care of that problem. That's why it's the demonstration of his love. The other thing that this verse says is, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So that we might live, I think, is also a key phrase. <clears throat> that was his purpose. In Colossians 2, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So that's what God's love was up to in the world, making us alive again where we had died due to sin. There's a famous verse in the Gospel of John 
You may have seen the reference at your favorite football game, John 3.16. Another legitimate place to find it is in your Bible. Um, but whichever way you get to it, it's great. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So God loved to make us alive. Amen, Bill, that's good. And so will the pizza be good. All right, verse 10 says this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's always a tongue twister for me, and atoning. While I take a drink, try to say that three times. I don't know. Some of you are pretty good at it. Others of you are like me. That's a tongue twister. And atoning. I've got to slow down to say it. So that's the key phrase I want to look at in this verse. We're talking more about love, about God's love. He sent his son again. But then there's a new phrase that John brings up, atoning sacrifice. Right? So what is atonement? Let's go to the dictionary. It means reparation, repairing a wrong or injury. And even in the secular dictionary, it talks about our faith. This is a very Christian word. It means the reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. But even more interesting than the definition is the origin of the word. Let's get nerdy, people. The origin of the word. It's early 16th century. It's funny. I was preparing for this message, and I was like, oh, atonement. I'm like, that sounds early 15th century. And I'm glad I looked it up because I would have been wrong. And I'm totally joking. I had no idea. No idea at all. I was, just, I was just looking for the definition that I found. Early 16th century. But did you know how it came about? There was the words at one. At one. If you look at how you spell atonement, we don't say it at one, but it's all in there. At one meant. So it speaks of reconciliation, of unity, of putting at one things that were not one. At one meant. Jesus is the at one meant the sacrificial at-one-ment. He came to put us back at one with God to fix that broken relationship that we were talking about. I thought it would be funny. I didn't do it, but just to buy like a tin of Altoids and like put at-one-mints as a reminder on there, right? Cheesy joke, but it, a reminder, at-one-mints. Just whenever you need to be at one with God, you just pop an at-one-mint. I could sell it in all the Christian bookstores. I'm going to make lots of, lots of money there. Okay, so let's look at... <laughs> Let's look at Jesus making us at one with God. Colossians 1 said, Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is Christ putting us back at one, fixing the alienation, reconciling us to God. That is super, super good. And the other thing that it says, it said um, he was a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, an at-one-ment sacrifice. So Jesus' death, Jesus' life even, was sacrificial. It cost him quite a bit. Remember, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus, God, together, you know, uh, angels floating on clouds playing harps. Okay, maybe that's not accurate, but life is good for Jesus. He's with God. He is not affected 
excuse me, by the sins of this world yet, but he chose to come down into this world to live life as a human, although he was God, to put himself in the sphere of influence of sin and death. You know, he had to come and get face to face and right in the mess of people doing wrong to each other. That must have been tough. Like he designed us to live a certain way in relationship with him and with each other that was unbroken and really, really good. And instead he's got to come down into this world where people are hurting each other and hurting themselves with the way they act. That would be tough. Not only did he do that, but he, he ministered to people, you know, healing the sick, you know, raising the dead, caring for um, the poor and, and the hungry. So he was in the thick of it, man. It was costly. Then, not only that, he chose to die on a cross. What a costly death. You know, to be separated himself from the Father and then raise again. But he had to go through all of that to get there. What a costly thing it was. Philippians 2 talks about how humbling it would be to do that. It says, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Wow, what a costly atonement. But he was willing to do it. That talks about the source of love, doesn't it? That's the kind of love we're talking about. All right, let's jump to verse 11. If you're keeping track, we're going up to 21. We've got a little ways to go. We better keep moving. The pizza's on its way. Verse 11 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So it says, since God so loved us. He's the source and he's the example. Because he's loved us, how he's loved us, let's love each other. That's how it ought to work. Again, we look back to chapter 3 of 1 John in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So we imitate his sacrificial giving. We give a costly gift of love to others to put them at one with God through Christ. So we're not called to originate love or manufacture love or conjure love. We tap into the source and we let it flow. It's so much easier. And it's so more genuine. It's so much more impacting. And it's what we're meant to do. You don't have to like drum it up. You don't have to be like like a grapevine and you're just like, and pop out a grape of love. That would be crazy. You know, you might pop a blood vessel instead. Just calm down, relax. Well, think of the vine. We're just going to tap in. We're just going to branch off of the vine that's connected to the source. It's going to draw up water from the ground, which is its source of nourishment, and it's going to branch it out and produce fruit. That is an excellent analogy of vine and branches. I didn't think of that. That was Jesus. In John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. So we're going to copy his example. We're going to remain in his love, connected to his love. He's connecting us to the Father. We're going to draw up out of that source to love others. It's an excellent analogy, Jesus. Thank you. Verse 12 says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. 
So let's go back to nerdiness, because it's so fun. Talk about Greek words. I'm not going to try to pronounce them, because that would be a train wreck. But there's two different completes. You'll see it translated complete or finish in different places. And I'm going to show you examples of those in the New Testament. But there's two different ones. One means like full. Like to fill up and be filled or full. And one means to accomplish or finish or mature. So it's kind of like state of fullness. And one is like active, completing, doing, accomplishing. Okay? So let's just look at a couple of examples of the full kind. In John 15, it says, I have told you this. This is Jesus. Same section we were just talking about, vine, branches, etc., etc. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He means full, full joy. And at the beginning of the letter of 1 John, John said he copied Jesus. That was really smart. He said, Hey, I'm going to write you this letter. Here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm going to say. And I'm writing to make our joy complete. Some places it says you could say your joy complete. I think either way we're good. He's talking about having full joy just like Jesus did. Hey, read my letter, people. and Make me really happy. Fill up my joy. Hey, read my letter, people, and be full of joy. If you do these things, you're going to be full of joy. All right, what's the other kind? The other kind of complete or finished that we see is right here in verse 12. God's love lives in us and is made complete. It's accomplished in us. So he's talking about something a little different. Not God's love being full. It's already full. It wants it to be finished, complete, matured in us. It's also in uh, John 4.34. Jesus said it. My food is to do the will of, of him who sent me and to finish accomplish, mature his work. So, John said, if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. That's how it gets finished. God's love is already full. The source is already there. You can't make it less full by anything you do. You can't make it more full. Excuse me, I'm like all mucusy. so if I keep going like, like this. Just clearing it up, trying to drink some water. Can't make God's love less full. You can't make it more full. It is full. But you can finish the work of God's love. You can partner with him as a child of God to complete, to finish, to mature the work that he's up to, that his love is up to in this world. Isn't that cool? That is super cool. It's so cool to be a part of it. All right. Next verse. We're going to run into that again. That complete, accomplished thing. All right, verses 13 through 15. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So we're getting another one of these. This is how we know statements. First John is full of them. How do we know? This is how we know. How do we know? This is how we know. One way we know we live in him and he in us. We know we're, we're in the right place. He's given us of his spirit. He's given us his spirit. There's another place in the New Testament that says, when you're a believer, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
where he dwells, where he lives. God has taken up residence inside of us as believers and followers of Jesus. That's what Jesus did when he put us at one. He enabled us to be purified so that a holy God could live inside of us. Wow, that is awesome. So we're talking about this again and again. Connect to the source of love. Draw up out of it and bear fruit. Does anybody know the first fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5? Spoiler alert. It's love. Can you see John like weaving? I don't know what, you know, he circles around and around these things, but it's building on all of this other stuff, you know, that these believers would be familiar with, just like we're familiar with Galatians, you know, and the Gospel of John. Remain in me. Produce fruit. You have the Holy Spirit in you. That's what it looks like to remain in me. Bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Just tying it all together. Nice job, John. Verse 16 says this, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So I think this is just kind of one of those summary statements. It's kind of those, just another wrap-up. Like the life of a believer is full and complete because God is love. Source. He put us at one. Put the Spirit in us. We drop out of it. We love one another. We bear fruit. That is what it looks like to be a child of God. All right, we're going to come back to one of those Greek words in this verse, verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. So, love, God's love, is finished. It's accomplished, it's matured when we look like Jesus. We already said this stuff. What did Jesus look like? What did his love look like? It was sacrificial, it was costly. He cared for people. You see again and again throughout the Gospels where Jesus is going on about his day. He's going somewhere, he's going to do something. Maybe he's going from this city to that city. And he's passing through somewhere and it says he had compassion on them. Oh, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, they're hungry. He teaches them. He heals their sick. He feeds them. He just has this love that is so compassionate, so willing to go out of his way for the good of others. And that's one of these ways that we can be confident that we know we're in him. We're doing the right thing. We're bearing the right fruit when we look like Jesus. All right, famous verse time. Verse 18 is famous. Maybe you've heard it. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So twice it says perfect. Same Greek word. Finished, accomplished, matured. So a a finished love, God's love completed in your life, God's love matured in your life will drive out fear. Fear won't have room left when God's love has done its work in us. So there are commentators. You can find them in the Blue Letter Bible, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And I'm going to paraphrase what they said. They said something like, Fear, by anticipating punishment, even now has the foretaste of it. Perfect love is incompatible with such a self-punishing fear. Let's like summarize what they just said because that's kind of hard to digest. Have you ever had something you really don't want to do? 
Like the day comes up, I got to do this thing this afternoon, after work, later, whatever, I've got this appointment, or you know, when I get home, I had to go in the backyard and do blah, 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 and you're just dreading it all day. You know, or there's a conversation you know you got to have with somebody. You know you're going to do it, but you really don't want to do it. Or there's that thing at work, the task you want to do, you've been putting off forever, but now the deadline's coming and you've got to do it. It can torture you <laughs> until you just get that thing done, right? The anticipation of the thing that is coming can drive you bonkers. Or here's another example. I knew there was only one service today. I was very sure of it. It was in the email uh, weekly notes thing from the church. Merrily, before she left for the women's retreat, is like one service, 11 o'clock, remember that? Like, yep, I got it. But yet, this morning and last night, I'm like, setting my alarm, I'm like, what if I got it wrong? Like, she's gone at the women's retreat. It's totally irrational, right? Women's retreat is one service. It's been that way for years. But I'm like, what if I got it wrong? What if 9 o'clock rolls around, even worse, 9.35, first service worship ends, and the front row is empty? And everybody's like, what do we do? <laughs> and I was, I was being tortured by this irrational fear. <laughs> Boy, was I glad to get here and see an empty parking lot. Whew. <laughs> Got here a little early. Nobody was here. I'm like, good. I, I wasn't wrong about it. But that's what we're talking about. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. So we know that we deserve separation from God. That's just a summary of what hell is. Separation from God. We deserve that. And it can produce fear of punishment. And what John is saying, hey, listen. If you are being tortured by fear of punishment... Listen, child of God, perfect love, when God's love is completed in you, when it's matured in you, when you've tapped into the source of God's love consistently, over time, it's going to push out that fear, that doubt that I'm going to end up separated from God. You're going to remain in him. You're going to live a life connected to God, and it's going to continue on to an eternal life connected to God, not separated from him. You don't have to live in fear. That is good news. It's a really long way to say that good news, isn't it? All right, so if you are ever tempted to fear punishment from God, if you, you know, slip into God is punisher mode and you're like, oh my gosh, I messed up, I sinned, and he is going to punish me. You need to connect to the source of God's love. You need to tap into the forgiveness that you can get through Jesus Christ and what he did. You don't earn your way out of it. You don't try to do 10 good things for every one bad thing. Have you ever heard that said? Like, hey, if you cut somebody down, you got to say like seven or 10 nice things to like outweigh it. It doesn't work that way with God. One sin is enough to earn separation from a perfect and holy God. He solved it instead. You don't have to earn your way out of it. You just tap into the source of God's love, receive his forgiveness and move on. Okay. The pizza arrived. Don't run. We're only two verses from the end, and I'm going to kick it into high gear, all right? So hang with me just for a couple more minutes. We're almost there. Another thing uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, the commentators, talked about, I'm just going to paraphrase it, was two kinds of fear. There's like a, a fear that says something along these lines. Wow, God, you love me so much. Your love is amazing. And because your love is so amazing, and I've tasted of that, I would never want to do anything that would offend you, that would hurt your feelings. I would never want to do that because you've loved me so much and that's amazing. 
That is a love-driven obedience, a love-motivated um, actions in our lives. There's another kind of fear that might look like, oh boy, God is holy. Oh boy, I am not. I have sinned. All have sinned, you know, and earned death, and I am one of them. Uh, right? And it might produce lookalike fruit, those two things. Right? Like somebody might come to church on a Sunday morning, totally motivated out of love. God is amazing. I'm going to go to church. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to work. It's going to be so good. I'm going to love him. And someone else might be like, I'm going to go to church. Whoo! Friday night was crazy, and I better earn myself some points by doing something right, so I'm going to church. Both people walk in the door, right? And so it's another one of these taste test things. We can taste test our own fruit in this sense, right? Like I don't see vines eating grapes. That'd be weird. But we can taste test our own fruit. We can say, why did I show up at church today? Is it because I'm connected to God's love? You know, why did I feel like I should, you know, talk to the homeless guy in the corner and, and offer him something to eat? Was I like, man, I better do some, I better minister to the poor or I'm in trouble. Or was it like, oh man, you love that guy, God, and, and I, I, I want to love him too. That's what we're looking for. All right, pizza, verse 20. <laughs> Second to last. Have you ever listened to a horse race? I think, is there one this weekend? There's like three big ones, and I think there's one this weekend or sometime. It's coming up soon. They say, the announcer's like, and down the stretch they come. And then he starts talking too fast to understand anything, saying the horse names. We're coming down the stretch. Verse 20 says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Hate is an incompatible fruit with a child of God. We've been saying this. It's another way of saying it. Hate is an incompatible fruit. And it's really, really easy to try to say, like, well, I don't hate people. I've actually said that. I'm like, oh, hate, this doesn't apply to me. I don't hate people. I just dislike that one a little bit. <laughs> You've been there too, I can tell by your laughter. Jesus was so amazing at getting to the heart of the rules, right? There are Old Testament rules. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Well, I, I never killed anybody. But I tell you the truth, if anyone's angry with a brother or sister, you know, they're subject to judgment. He's like, it's the heart of the matter. And the same is true here. It's really easy to go, I don't hate anybody. I just dislike so-and-so a little bit. Because they bug me. Right? What's the heart of it? The heart of it is, don't hold something against someone. Be willing to forgive as God forgave you. Offer that forgiveness. Forgiveness does not say that what they did is okay. It doesn't say it didn't hurt. It doesn't say it might have caused years of trouble in your life. But forgiveness says, God forgave me when I hurt him, so I'm going to forgive you even though you hurt me. Very, very important. I'm so glad God does not hold unforgiveness toward me for the wrongs that I've done. So I want to do the same. Verse 21, he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is how John wraps up the chapter. He didn't write it as a chapter, but this little section kind of wraps up. He has given us this command. And I almost breezed right by it, and then I was like, oh, 
John's not telling us to love each other anymore. He's saying, hey, he gave us this command. Who's he? Jesus. Remember in Matthew 22, somebody said, teacher, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is commanding to love. He's saying, hey, everything God is doing here starts with this, love. And then in um, John 13, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So John's saying, hey, I'm not just telling you to love each other so that it'll be easier to oversee this church because you guys are a problem right now. You're not getting along. This is difficult for me. So start loving each other. He's like, no, Jesus said this. This is how we show we're his disciples. This is what Jesus said. So this is what we're going to do. That's a good wrap up. So I just wanted to close by sharing with you briefly one of my experiences with God's love um, that was transformational for me. I've probably shared it before. If you've been around for a while, you might have heard this. Um, but I really struggled with that fear of punishment thing. You know, I'd been a Christian for many, many years. I was still struggling with the same old stuff. And worship service is going, and I'm just having a pity party. You know, the, I remember exactly where I was. We used to have, the stage was on that side, and I was sitting on the, like, kind of the front left-ish. And I was just like, how can I even worship right now? Eyes closed so nobody, you know, self-conversation going on. I have done it again. How can he forgive me? I've done it again. You know, and then there I am, eyes closed, and I suddenly got a picture, a memory of me doing one of my worst sins that I felt the most ashamed of. I'm like, yep, see, God, you're even bringing it to memory here. Like, you agree. I'm a bad dude, and, uh, and, and I should feel awful. And, um, and then God changed it in an instant. The picture changed, and I saw Jesus doing my worst sin. And I was like, whoa, God, that is really bad theology. I know Jesus was sinless. He wouldn't do any sin, much less the one that I feel so bad about. And he said, no, that's how I see it now. And um, blows me away even to try to share it again. But that was a turning point for me. That was a connection to God's source of love that was so transformational for me. And um, I, didn't, I didn't go out and immediately overcome my issues. But it was the thing that set in motion the change in, in my actions. I start, it, was, it was the thing that was rooting in love that later totally changed the fruit that I bared, that I bared, that I would bear in my life. <laughs> drink, drink, drunk. I, I, these words are hard. <laughs> that moment of rooting into God's love, that he would speak directly to me in a worship service, that's how I see it. I really forgive you. It's like Jesus did it, not you. I totally forget. It's not in your record. I'm not keeping that record of wrongs. It was totally transformational. So, I really want to encourage you to seek after an experience of God's love that can transform your life. Many of you have. Keep going back. That's a well that will not run dry. Keep going back and finding that source of God's love consistently in your life.